Welcome to episode 232 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Michelle S. Jones. She was the first female to serve as Command Sergeant Major in the U.S. Army Reserve. I saw Michelle speak at the Women Veteran Alliance Women Veteran Engage event in October of 2022, and I knew she would be a great guest for the podcast. In this interview, she shared highlights from her career, starting with lessons she learned from basic training and pivotal moments in her career that led to her becoming the command sergeant major in the U.S. Army Reserve. I really hope you enjoy this interview. I got a lot from it and thought that it was great. Before we get started with this week's interview, I want to remind you that you have the opportunity to listen to Women of the Military podcast now on Reese Across America Radio twice a week. That's Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. Hey everyone, before we get started with this week's interview, I wanted to share some exciting news about A Girl's Guide to Military Service. This past weekend, I got to attend the International Book Publishers Association Benjamin Franklin Award Dinner and A Girl's Guide to Military Service was a finalist in two categories, Career and Advice, along with Teen Nonfiction, and I'm excited to share that A Girl's Guide to Military Service is the gold medal winner for Teen Nonfiction and a silver medalist for Career and Advice. I'm really excited about this accomplishment, and I just wanted to share it with all of you, and if you haven't had a chance to get your copy of A Girl's Guide to Military Service, you can check out the link in the show notes, or you can head over to your favorite book-selling site. Now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Michelle. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. Excited to be here. Excited to be here. Yeah, I heard you speak at Women Veterans Engage with Women Veteran Alliance, and you were so inspiring. I knew I had to have you as a guest on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I try. I try. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Who um, I would say um, I was in college at the time, and although I knew I wanted to go to college, I wasn't quite ready yet. And the commercial back then, and I'm so excited the Army has finally gone back to the slogan of be all you can be. It just kind of resonated with me. Um, I knew I wanted to do something different. Um, I knew that I kind of marched to a different drummer, for lack of a better uh, saying there. And I thought I wanted to become an attorney. So with that being said, I decided to join the military as a paralegal to work in that arena to really decide if that's what I wanted to do. I had no intentions of staying for um, as long as I did, um, but I wanted something uh, different and and quite frankly, to, to travel and experience other things while I was figuring out as an adult what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. So that was the initial thing. I will also say that there was a commercial that um, it was this this guy. Um, it was a they were out in the field and this guy came parachuting down uh, and he said, uh, good morning, first sergeant. And I was like, I want to do that and um, I want to meet him. But um, I didn't meet him, but I did become a paratrooper as well. And it just like I said, it just resonated with me. 
And um, so I said, I'm going to join. I'm going to join. So that's what I did. That was the initial. So you joined the Army, and did you start out in the reserves or on active duty? No, I actually started out in the active component. And um, again, uh, the opportunities were there. Didn't didn't really even know about the reserves, quite frankly. All I knew was active component. And um, so that's why I went ahead and joined there. And um, at that time, it was a six-year obligation. And um, I was like, okay, whatever. And, and went ahead and did that. So I didn't know about the reserves, didn't know about anything other than an active component at that time. So yes. That makes sense. I mean, I think when I was joining, I didn't, I actually ended up at a National Guard recruiting station, but uh, it was because my dad knew someone who worked there and I didn't even really know what the difference between all the different things. And so in a way, I only knew the National Guard existed when I was looking at enlisting because that was what I found. And so that makes that makes a lot of sense. When you went to boot camp, what was that experience like? Well, my dad, he had actually been in prior to, so he kind of, you know, um, schooled me for lack of a better term. And, you know, my father just kept saying, you know, I don't know if you're going to, I don't know if you're going to make it because you have a lot of this. And, um, but I knew, and, and he pretty much knew, and my mom knew that, you know, once I put my mind to something, but basic training, quite frankly, to me and my father kept telling me, you know, it's a mind game, you know, it's a mind game, you know, it is physical, but it's really, really the mental ability to, to do what you have to do. So like I said, I was prepared. For me, basic training was not that difficult. And what I mean by that, yes, there were physical challenges. I was I was an athlete, but I was not a runner. And so running, um, I'm like, oh my God, I'm just gonna have to run just for the sake of running. And so for me, psychologically, that was a challenge because I didn't like to run. That was the hardest part. The other um, part where I really became very angry and really couldn't understand. I understood it um, logically in terms of the CS gas chamber. Um, I was very angry about that. Um, I thought it was cruel. I thought it was inhumane. And I understood the principle to become confident in your gear. But I just thought it was was one of the most horrific and, and traumatic experiences that I ever, ever had. And quite frankly, after that first experience, I said, I don't care. Whatever happens, I will never do this again. And I probably shouldn't admit this, but I'm going to say it. After that first time in basic training, I never did it again. I never did it again. I'm like, the equipment works. I know it. Got it. Not doing it. And, and I never did. I never did. And I remember saying to um, one of the drill sergeants as I was expelling everything that I had eaten, I said, I wouldn't do a dog like this. I was just that angry. And I think that was the most belligerent, if you will, time in basic training. Uh, now, with that being said, there were a couple times when, and we they used to call them birth control glasses because I wore glasses. And um, I remember when we went to the rifle range that we were allowed to wear our civilian glasses. And so I had mine on. And um, I remember the drill sergeant telling me to take them off. And, you know, I took my time. And it was just little things that I would do. I'm like, they're trying to irritate us. So I'm just going to irritate him. And so he dropped me, you know, made me do all these push-ups. But I was, you know, I just had this little smirk on my face. Like, you're not going to do this. I'm not going to allow you 
to break me. And um, I think at that point in time is when I realized that there's really nothing that you can do that will put me in a zone of anger. There's nothing that you can do that will put me on an emotional roller coaster. You know, I am really in charge of my own reaction to what you do. And it was sort of like a revelation. And uh, from that point forward, really, I mean, it was just, okay, I got another week. I got another week. I got another week. And, um, but it wasn't that difficult um, for me. Um, the other piece I'll add in regards to basic training, um, one point that really stood out and followed me as a leader, um, you know, you got, you got assigned battle buddies. And the battle buddy that I had, she was very, very passive. She cried, you know, every little thing. And I was like, you know, stop whining, stop sniveling. And, and I went to my drill sergeant and I was like, why did you assign me this person? And she had the coolest name. And her name was, and I don't know if she's still living. I don't know if anybody knows her, but her name was Star Baracko. I liked her as a person, but, um, and knowing her backstory, obviously, and I'm not going to share that, but she was a wonderful human being, but she was so opposite of who I was and, and how I was. But my drill sergeant said to me, he's like, Jones, she need, you need to learn how to bring someone up. You know, you're strong, you do this, uh, and I need you to learn how to have compassion, empathy, and bring those up. And um, she did, you know, and she was older than us too. So she, she came in late. And um, she was married, she had kids, the whole nine yards. And it was a learning point as a leader. You know, you're not always gonna have the strongest people. You have to bring people up. And so that that stayed with me my entire time as a leader. So Star Baracko, if you're out there, I love you. You know, you were a wonderful person then, but it was it was it was a learning point. So anyway, I'll leave basic training behind. <laughs> Next. <laughs> I love hearing how like your career in the military, the development started from the very beginning. I mean, a lot of people talk about how hard it was or, you know, the things they like, but a lot of, not very many people realize the re the leadership traits that are being instilled in you. And you were able to talk about them so eloquently and even recognize you're like, why am I with this person? And they were like, we, we see potential in you and we know that you can bring them up. And so that's a really cool experience. Yeah, yeah, it was. It really was. So after you graduated from basic training, did you head to your tech school? Uh, yeah, I went to um, AIT, my advanced individual training, and that was at uh, Fort Benjamin Harrison as a paralegal legal specialist back then. And um, even then, uh, something, again, that, that stayed with me for the rest of my military career, I became really, really sick. Um, I was hospitalized for, and I had strep throat and it was, I think my fever was up like 103 point something. And I was hospitalized for an entire week during the most intense training, uh, which was article 32 B and, and you had to listen to testimony and summarize and also summarize what you heard during the actual hearing and my class was taught all that process that week and I missed it. And you could only make, let's say, you know, maybe four or five errors 
in that when you took the test, and I think the test was like five hours long. I mean, it was like some crazy thing. And I remember thinking, I've been with, you know, my classmates for months now. I don't want to be recycled and graduate um, with someone else um, or another group of, 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 you know, teammates. And my classmates were coming to the hospital as they could to visit. And when I was finally released, you know, they were diligent in bringing me up to speed in everything. And I remembered my instructor and I remember his name. And back then we didn't have uh, staff staff sergeants in the, the administrative field. We had specialists. So he was a spec six. And um, so his name was specialist Molash. You know, again, these names that stay with you. And he said, you're going to be recycled. And I remember going and I'm like, you know, you, I've got to argue the point to let me at least try. And so I remember going to him and I, I'm like, listen, what's the difference between me trying and and failing and and or not trying at all and automatically being recycled? What happens if I fail? He said, you'll be recycled. I said, so the end is the same. Give me the opportunity to at least test you know, all my classmates, I mean, they they just, again, that team, we want you with us. So I took the exam. I took all the time, you know, all the time that was allotted. And um, so, of course, you know, everybody's stressing and, and, and all of this. And again, it, you know, I think maybe five errors you could have and some way, way more. And those were five minor errors. And um, I remember going to his cubicle. And he looked at me and I looked at him and, you know, he just kind of shook his head and my heart just dropped. I'm like, man, I, you know, I'm thinking I didn't pass. And he said, I don't know how you did it. He said, but you passed and you only missed two. And there was no way I could have done it without my teammates. And so I'm walking back to the class because each person was individually called in and, and you could pretty much tell how they were walking. And I think everybody made it, but they said they knew I had passed because they heard me as I was walking down the hall, you know, my, and we had on class B's and my heels were clicking, you know, um, that I had passed. Again, very strong lesson. How a team, again, can bring you up when you hit a major bump in the road. So that again, stayed with me my entire military career as an individual, as well as a leader. So strong points, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. See, I think people know why I wanted to interview you. Like all these amazing stories. I just have like my jaw on the floor. I just love hearing. I mean, when I, you were speaking at the Women Veteran Engage, you were giving such like profound advice and, you know, left such an impact from sharing your story and we were talking more about the veteran aspect at that event, but just hearing your career and about how, you know, you overcame obstacles. And I like that you were like, what's the end result? If you felt like if I try and I fail, I get recycled or you could just let me get recycled. And and then I don't even get the opportunity to try. And so I and I love the aspect of teamwork. Not only were they helping you they were helping themselves because they were learning the material as they were teaching it to you so it was a win-win for everybody absolutely absolutely and i if i'm not mistaken i believe 
we were the only class at that time where we had 100% graduation. I, I believe we had, you know, set the record and the bar was high after that. Yeah. Yeah. And it tributes to like the teamwork that you guys had to work together and, you know, and make sure that you got caught up after missing such a pivotal week. So you guys all graduated and then you got to head off to your different assignments. Where did you go? I uh, went to Fort Carson, Colorado and worked in the legal field. Um, it was at that time, the only consolidated, well, one of two, I think, consolidated legal facilities. In other words, every legal specialist, every legal NCO, <clears throat> excuse me, every court reporter worked in this, in these two buildings. We weren't down at the unit level. We all worked together. We had every aspect of leader of legal from administrative to trial defense, to criminal, to everything. So it really enabled me to learn all those various aspects of the legal field, which you wouldn't have been able to do that if you were down at a unit. You would only know, you know, the one piece non-judicial punishment, which was like Article 15s and things like that. So it really set me up for success, number one. Number two, it let me know I did not want to be in the legal field. I did not want to become an attorney, but it did give me uh, the opportunity to, to develop certain skill sets that I could apply uh, across the board, regardless of whatever career field I was in. So that was, that was really um, the basis, I would say, of the administrative piece of becoming a leader. Again, you know, that's, I didn't, I won't say I put that, that title on it, but I knew what things I was pulling at the time. Again, this is important under the, you know, pillar of leadership. Can't say that I knew that, but definitely knew these skill sets are applicable across the board. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I know you had a long career, so I don't want to like go through every piece, but I always like talking about the early stages because I think, like you said, it builds the foundation for the rest of your career. But were there any highlights that happened within like the first 10, 15 years of your career that we haven't talked about already? Yeah, I would say one of the piv another pivotal point in the first, once I uh, decided I wouldn't be, didn't want to be in the active component anymore. Well, actually I wanted to get out. Um, I was given an opportunity. I had taken the officer selection battery test and I passed and I was offered the opportunity to be released from active duty, to go back to college and get my degree. But then for every year they put me through, I owed them too. So at that time I'm like, ah, no, 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 no. So I was on my way um, out, but a uh, neighbor of my parents um, told me about the army reserve. And so when I looked into the Army Reserve, I'm like, oh my gosh, look at all these opportunities. Now keep in mind, so many career fields were closed to women at that time. Certain you know, assignments you couldn't go to. So anyway, I looked at the Army Reserve. I looked at the percentage of women in the Army Reserve. And I looked at all the things they were doing around the world. And so I decided to enlist and or re-enlist into the Army Reserve. That's the decision I made. With that being uh, said, one of the pivotal points in my initial three years, I went to Honduras, which the active component wouldn't send me. And that pissed me off because I was a female. They were only allowing certain ones to go. So the reserve was going. So I went, 
uh, one evening, uh, there was a lot of uh, firing going on. We were up in the mountains. And so we had to get our weapons, uh, you know, go get ammo, et cetera, and hunker down in our hasty fighting positions. And by that time, I'm a staff sergeant. What I didn't really realize until that pivotal moment, here I am in Honduras. If I had to leave these soldiers out, I didn't know if I could because we were up in the mountains. I was terrified of heights and falling. I mean, there were 250 foot drops, 450 foot drops. We had already lost a couple soldiers and Honduran soldiers to this mountainous terrain. And I'm, I'm laying there and I've got young soldiers to my left and the right looking at me. What do we do? You know, what do we do now? And that's when it hit me. The, the army had failed me, in my opinion. And what I mean by that, because I was a female, because I was in a legal arena, they didn't train me outside of basic survivability, you know, maneuvering um, under all these, these various different hostile environments. I was angry and I said, Lord, if I get out of here and in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm from Baltimore. I'm going to get them out of here. But I said, Lord, if I get out of here, what can I do to be a better leader, to put myself in a situation? So fast forward, um, I found out an opportunity at Fort Bragg. And at that time it was first SOCOM Special Operations Command. And there was a requirement to be a paratrooper. And I did everything that I could to get assigned down there. And I was accepted, selected, and I went to Fort Bragg. That was the pivotal point for the rest of my career. Because at Fort Bragg, everything is about soldiering. Everything, whether you're active, reserve, whatever. That's the bottom line. If you're a paratrooper, you're going to learn how to control fears and lead from the front. And it set me up. If I had not done that, if I had not gone to Fort Bragg, if that incident had not happened in Honduras, I do not believe I would have taken that path. So that piece, um, and I'm like, if I can jump out of perfectly good airplanes, choppers, or whatever, control this fear and move forward, I can do anything. And that became my mantra for the rest of my career. That piece right there set me up for the rest. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear the history because, you know, so long combat roles were closed off to women. And then, like, you, when you were active duty, you wouldn't even have the opportunity to go to Honduras. And then as the reserves, they probably needed a body and you were there. And so they sent you, but they didn't give you all the training that you needed to be in, you know, when you were in a tough situation and you weren't, you didn't know what to do because you didn't get the training. And so... And so going to paratrooper school, were you one of only few or only females? Like, what was that experience like? Ooh, there was, let's say, I can't remember the number. Let's just say out of, let's say the number 100. You know, I can't remember how many were in our, in, in my company, but there were only about, I want to say roughly 10 out of 100, you know, if that. They did not want us there. You know, the common... The, the, the most common comment was, you know, I don't know why women are here in airborne school taking up a slot because they're not going to deploy. They're not going to jump, you know, and, and to me, it was systematic trying to get females to drop. 
Now, I went as a sergeant first class, so I was considered an older soldier. I was a senior NCO. So I, you know, I was responsible for the women. And, and, you know, so we all bunked in the same, it was the same room. That's why I know it was, you know, maybe 10, maybe at the most 15. And I became that, that person everyone looked to, everyone looked to. And the black hats, because that's what the instructors are called, because they wore black hats, they really made an example out of me. Every time, you know, anything uh, on the swing land trainer, lateral drift apparatus, they would drop me. I mean, just just hammering and hammering and hammering, hammering. And I'm like, you're not going to break me. You're not going to break me, you know? And, you know, I became the mom figure for all the females. And I'm like, you know, no, you're going to get in. You're going to dig in. You're going to dig in. You're going to dig in. You know, I, I got it. I understand. Nobody's getting beat up more than me, you know, and I'm the oldest one here. Okay. And if I can do it, you can do it. You know, now, was it the mindset of all the males? Absolutely not. You know, um, Matter of fact, one of my best buddies, he was starting first class, um, I think his last name was Bianco or something like that. He was a great guy, loved him dearly. He was my battle buddy, you know, and, and, and I remember all the young, and this is again, something that I never forgot, the young privates, he and I would be talking, we both um, uh, starting first classes, and he and I would be off to the side, maybe talking. And all these young privates would kind of migrate toward us, you know, and um, to us, we were to them, we were like, oh, sorry for his classes, you know, we're privates, they, you know, they're fresh out of basic. And I affectionately called them the puppy patrol because they would just follow us everywhere. But again, looking at us, looking at me, you know, here's this female, this non-commissioned officer, and I knew what they were seeing. And it was like, I have an obligation to show them, regardless of gender, a leader is a leader. For sure. And what year was that, that you went through that? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> approximately. Approx approximately 1990, 1991, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I had been in about eight years at that time. Yeah. Well, and the military changed a lot, like, after... I think the military was starting to change, but people didn't realize, like, the role that women were, you know, break, like, doing paratrooper training, doing things that women hadn't been able to do, and, you know, men... Some of the men had negative opinions about, but I think that all that stuff that was happening that nobody was really paying attention to really led to, you know, eventually in 2015, when women were allowed to be in combat roles... It did take like all these women stepping up and doing this training and then, you know, the non-traditional roles in Afghanistan and Iraq that led to where women are at today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, and it was a journey. You know, it was a journey to see the evolution when you're in the evolution. You know, you hear little things, but you're, you're busy. And, and most women will say, you know, I didn't think, OK, I'm a woman and I'm, you know, doing these things. It's like I'm a soldier that happens to be a female, you know, and I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, the mindset was, if the opportunity is there, I'm going to jump, you know, jump toward it. I did have leadership, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, that didn't look at me as, as, as a female per se, you know, um, you done good, or you've asked for this opportunity. We've never sent, you know, at that time, you know, before I reclassified a paralegal, 
Um, it was more a paralegal to this type of training, but it's authorized, but you better not fail. You better not fail. And so knowing that, you know, that's riding on your shoulders. If I fail, another paralegal, another female may not get this opportunity because I messed it up. So that wasn't going to happen on my watch. So, yeah. Yeah. I, in the last few interviews that I've done, that pressure to prove, it's a theme that's come out throughout the podcast. But in the last few interviews, we've talked about that specifically about how, like, women who get the opportunity to do something, they have all this pressure because they know that it's not just them. It's, you know, the people behind them. And so, you know, that means they work harder. They strive to be not just past, but to be the best because they know that that door was open for them and they want to leave it open for the women behind them. And I think, I think that's really hard and it's not something that we talk about enough, but it's also, I guess, just one of the things that happens when you're one of the first to do something is to change. You know, it, it does take a lot of pressure on yourself to make that change. It, it's true. And, and I always say, I don't want to just open the door for those coming behind me. I always say, I want to rip the door off the hinges so you can never close it again. And so that, again, you know, just propelled me, you know, you'll never be able to close this door again. And you continued to break glass ceilings because you were the first, okay, I'm going to mess it up because I didn't write my notes down. <laughs> you were the first command sergeant in the Army Reserve. Is that right? Um, no. Um, yes and no. I was the first command sergeant major of the entire Army Reserve. I There were a couple female command sergeant majors before me, um, but the first command sergeant, female command sergeant major of any of the Army's components. Um, so you have the sergeant major of the Army, you've got the sergeant major of the Army Reserve, and you have the sergeant major of the National Guard. And so there had never been a female in any of those positions. So, you know, the Army Reserve, the numbers can go up from 200,000 to 600,000, you know, a year. It depends on, on when we look at the entire reserve component. So that's what the actual history was, the first command sergeant major of the entire component of the Army Reserve. So, yeah. Top of the food chain. <laughs> I mean, we've heard a little bit of your story about, I mean, there's a lot more to it, but we've heard like some of the highlights that led to you getting into that role. But what did it mean for you to be in that role, to have, you know, have overcome and, you know, broke through barriers to get to that point? And then what did that mean? And then we'll talk about what you did, because I know that you did a lot of things to help soldiers. What it meant to me, uh, first of all, quite frankly, um, as I, I was nominated because those positions, you have to be nominated. And um, when I interviewed, quite frankly, uh, part of me was like, you know, I'm a female. But the other part of me was was more that I'm the most junior of all of these. And, and I, let's say it was five or six of us that actually interviewed with the chief of the Army Reserve. And I said, I'm the most junior not so much the female element. And the interesting thing, every last one of us that interviewed with the chief of the army reserve, all of us at some point in time had worked with him. We were, had been assigned under him at some point. So he had knowledge of us pre the interview. So again, I, my thoughts were, I was nominated. I was selected to interview if nothing other than I've gone through this process and I know what it is. 
And so when I was selected, uh, I remember I was at my division headquarters and honestly, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. You know, I couldn't believe it. So what did it mean? Again, never even thought about the fact that there had never been a female. Truly, it never even crossed my mind. It wasn't until the public affairs team at the Pentagon, they were doing a press release. And I just thought it was, and they sent the draft to my office and I thought it was just new, you know, Command Sergeant Major of the Army Reserve. I thought that was gonna be the press release. But then I saw the headline, first female. That's when it hit me. I'm like, oh snap. Now, the significance of the time period it was the global war on terrorism. We were mobilizing tens of thousands of reserve component soldiers at that time, unprecedented. We were being slammed. We, the Army Reserve, was being slammed in the media in regards to lack of training. We weren't prepared. We didn't have the equipment. All of, it was a hot mess. Congress was sending all these, I mean, it was, you know, the systems talking about training, pay, mobilization, and all those things were going simultaneously. So it was get in there and hit the ground running. You have to, you have to, in the media, you have to command this and control the narrative. Training, you've got to look at this hard and find out where the systematic things are so you can go back and report to Congress. You have to go out to the mobilization sites, which I was very familiar with, as a division command sergeant major, because that was under my purview. So I knew it well, and I ran the one at Fort Bragg, but I had to get out there and find out what it is. You have to address the family's issues. Why is my husband, wife, daughter, whoever being mobilized and they're spending three months, six months, a year in training before they even deploy? Why is it two years when they're only supposed to be gone for six months? So there were so many things that were happening at that time. And I did not have the luxury of just saying, okay, we'll take this one at a time. No, you gotta hit them all simultaneously hard. You know, here's where the paralegal background came forefront, getting that research, getting that research, having my team, I had the most amazing team to get me the information so I can articulate it, so I could ask the intelligent questions, so I could make the intelligent recommendations based on all these variables. And that paralegal training and skill set really came into play at that time. It sounds like every opportunity within your career was somewhere that you could learn from and then use that in the future. Like even your, you know, AIT training that helped you as the command sergeant major of the army reserve. Sometimes I think we were like, oh, this training isn't that important, but like every piece of training the military gives you from basic training to when whatever you're at today, it's important and it has value. I think I went to four months of training before I left for Afghanistan. And a lot of times I, when I was in training, I was like, why are we doing this? We've already done this. Like, why did we do this 65? Like we had to, clear our weapons every time we went inside a building, even though we didn't have bullets. And at the time I was like, 
this is the dumbest thing ever, but I could still clear a weapon without looking at it because I've done it over and over and over. And like that repetitive training and all those things that seem like small things, they're actually big things that are training you. And so that's, that's really cool to hear how it went like full circle. And you're not the first person to talk about being the first woman to do something and not know. Like, I think in the military, we're just doing our job and we don't think about glass ceilings or, you know, I deployed attached to an infantry unit and I wasn't thinking, oh, this is something unique and different. It was just like, oh, this is my job and they're telling me to do it. And I I never thought about, oh, well, I'm a female I mean, I knew that there was combat exclusion, but I didn't really understand it, and I didn't really research it because the army was telling me this is what you're gonna do, and I was like, "Okay, sounds good." Right, <laughs> exactly, really... exactly. <laughs> it's not what I expected, but that doesn't matter. Like the military doesn't really care what you expect; you do whatever they tell you to do. Yeah, so true. You were talking about like all the different things that you guys were hit with, with you know mobilization and like things, families and you know, there was so much stuff going on. What do you think was like the biggest impact that you made in the role as command? (laughs) I see your face. You're like, I don't know. (laughs) They can be more than one. I can't, I I, I, honestly, because it was so many different things I can, I'll kind of put it in, let's say on the, on the family side, having the opportunity to really go out to, to all the various locations and explaining to the families, you know, why this is so important and getting it out in the media in terms of why the, you know, the long period of time from the time that you're, you're mobilized to the time that you actually deploy. And one of the things that I always said, what you will never be able to say about me or the Army Reserve, that we did not give your loved one the opportunity to make sure they are trained, they have everything that they need in terms of training prior to deploying. They are not ready, especially if they came out of the individual ready reserve. So that was the ability to do that. So that's number one. Number two, getting, um, provide, taking every opportunity again to explain to America, number one, the differences between the various different categories of army reserve. And there are five and most people don't understand that. And that's not just the media that was even within the army reserve, as well as in the active component. That was another thing, you know, so all these regulations laws and are different for each category. Um, and, and again, hitting them all at the same time. The other thing is, um, educating and getting regulations and opportunities change within the army. For example, pay. One of the things that was critical, you deployed, it could take months before you were in, you know, the pay system. And, and it was ridiculous of all these variable different processes. It, it did take time, but where it is seamless that within 30 days you are paid, that's another major piece getting out to the manufacturers that manufacture the uniforms because because again the reserves was deploying without the right uniform putting that again going to the active component and saying you know you can't deliver uniforms based on active component what they have to be delivered based on deployment if that active duty unit is not deploying they should not be getting these new uniforms so changing that dynamic So those that were deploying were getting the uniforms. 
The other thing, going into theater and going to the actual sites that they were, because the equipment that the Army Reserve was not the same ones that the active component were deploying with, to be able to say, okay, this is where they're doing the change. They were changing the vehicles in theater, not before, you know, and the, the expeditious manner in which that had to do. So that was another piece, highlighting that, bringing it to the forefront so those immediate changes could be made. The other thing was promotions. Like I said, it was so many different things, and that's why I I can't really say what was most important because all of these things were important. You had multiple promotion systems. Active component members were being promoted within their centralized system. Reserve component were being promoted based on the regional selection, and it wasn't happening. And there were policies that prohibited them from getting promoted when they were in on on deployment, which was insane. Automatic advancements in the reserve uh, up to you know from E1 to E4 was again there had to be a slot, there had to be a position. So again, being very instrumental in the change. If we have a hundred thousand. E5 positions and we only have, you know, 15,000 filled. Why can't we promote based on this vacancy? We don't go over the cap. Don't penalize a soldier because they are deployed. So that was changed. So again, there were so many different ones going on simultaneously that I, I really can't say and won't say. Regulations were changed. Policies were changed. Laws were changed. I mean, something as minor as the ID card. If you were, you know, if you remember back in the day, it was, you know, active had green, reserve had pink, you know, you had to do all this swapping. It cost the army or the military vastly approximately $20 every time they made a change. One ID card, when they went to the cat card, you can put uh, reserve, you know, or active component or reserve component. Boom. That's it. Active duty or no. That's all you have to do. Um, saved millions of dollars and it took away the stigma of a reserve member. Oh, you got a pink ID card. That was demoralizing for those that didn't deploy. There was a commissary card that you had to get punched every time you want. You could only go to the commissary so many times a year. It was insane. Again, you can be called anytime. Why can't you go? So that was changed. So again, it was so many changes and so many things directly and indirectly, that I really can't say, you know, some people say training was most important. Some people say equipment was most important. Some people say pay is most important. So I don't want to say which one was more or less, because ultimately all of them collectively were impacting the Army Reserve, you know, period. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because if you took one of them away, then it would affect, you know, like they were all interconnected and it sounds like the army reserve and the army as a whole was kind of like caught off guard by this, like, you know, unexpected war that required them to act, you know, everything had been going like, you know, they had a system and it was pretty laid back and, you know, people were still deploying for different things, but then it was like ramped up and they were like, Oh, we have all these, (laughs) all these problems that we were just putting bands on before that now are like hemorrhaging and we have to do something about it. Well, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask if there was anything else from your time in the military or even after you've left that you want to talk about. 
Oh boy. Overall, I, I would say this and just kind of keeping it simplistic. Everybody's military journey is, is different. I have absolutely no regrets. Even when I may have gone in one direction and had to step back and go, go again. The one thing that I would ask particularly of women veterans or women still in and women veterans, uh, number one is to stand up and say you are a veteran, you know, period. To be vocal, to participate in the things that you can, because we must voice our journey. We've done it very well. If we hadn't, we wouldn't be in a place right now in terms of women can be in any, you know, have any career field, but never, never stop. The other thing I would say to let your story be told, and that's at the Women's Service of America Memorial in Washington, D.C., you know, put it in record for your legacy, for your own family, you know, two, three, four generations, they can go there and hear from you directly. Every day was a good day in the military. Some were better than others. But subsequently, every day was a good day because it allowed me to live my life the way that I chose to, to leave a legacy that continues to go on exponentially. And to be given that opportunity in life has been truly a blessing to me. And so I'm a soldier. I'm always going to be a soldier. I'm a soldier that happens to be a female. And I did my journey in and as a leader, just as a soldier, period, who love being a woman. So <laughs> I'll just say that. Yeah, so I always like to end my interview with what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering military service? So you gave us veterans advice. So now what are you going to tell the next generation of women? Next generation of take advantage of every opportunity that you can. Anything that comes your way, even if it's hard, even if you don't think that you can do it, um, if you don't complete it, so be it. But give it everything that you have. Don't allow anyone to tell you what you can or cannot do. If they put a block in your way, go over it, under it, find another avenue of approach, stay legal, ethical, and moral. You decide what your military career looks like, period. Uh, no one else can define it but you. So again, it's not always easy. Sometimes people do things to you just because you are female or stop you. But again, you decide whether or not they're going to put the pause on you. Your decision. Don't get mad. Don't get even. Your greatest revenge is your success. Your greatest revenge is your success. For all the naysayers, for me, every time I had a success, it was the greatest thing. And I smiled and giggled all the way. So that's what I'll leave. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this interview. It's jam-packed with so much advice and wisdom as I expected it to be. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to share. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. I'm really thankful that you took the time to listen to this episode. And I wanted to tell you about two resources that may help you in your journey of military service. And so the first is my 
new book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, which is available at the link in the show notes on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can go check it out. It's A Girl's Guide to Military Service. It's meant to help you answer all your questions about military life and give you a firm foundation for the start of your career. And if you're looking for mentorship or want to be a mentor, please check out the Women of the Military Mentorship Program, which is also linked to in the show notes. You can sign up to be a mentee or a mentor. Thanks so much for listening and have a great week.